From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. Every force except the Marines would get more troops, and uniformed personnel would get a 3% pay raise under the House Appropriations Committee's first cut at a fiscal 2021 budget bill. The bill adds 12 F-35s, but comes in, uh, comes in $3.5 billion under the Trump administration's request. Breaking defense reports the Marine Corps would lose 2,100 Marines under the bill. The National Institute of Standards and Technology has a new draft of a guide on cyber standards for the Defense Department. The draft lists how to detail requirements for controlled unclassified systems to industry. Inside Defense Reports comments on the final draft are due August 21st. More on this later in the program. The Defense Intelligence Agency is taking proposals on a $12.5 billion IT services contract. The Site-3 contract will provide operational support to DIA and the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency for the next 10 years. FedScoop reports the contract will run double the value and length of its predecessor contract, eSight. The new superintendent of the Air Force Academy will be Lieutenant General Richard Clark if the Senate confirms him. He served as Commandant of Cadets at the Academy, and he'd be the first African-American superintendent of the Air Force. His selection comes after the confirmation of General Charles Brown to be the Chief of Staff of the Air Force. He's the first African-American chief of the U.S. military service. General Larry Spencer, U.S. Air Force, retired as former vice chief of the Air Force. Larry, thanks very much for coming on. Does it look to you like the Air Force and the other services are making progress in their goal of building forces that look like America? I think so. And clearly, obviously, with the uh, selection of General Brown, uh, that was a great start. The first chief of staff of any service. And then uh, Lieutenant General Richard Clark, who's been nominated to, uh, to lead our, our Air Force Academy. Uh, great choice, great guy. Uh, he'll do a great job. Academy grad himself, uh, just a wonderful uh, general officer and, and will really do a great job. How far down the talent chain should the forces be reaching, do you think, so that the bench exists for future positions to be able to choose really talented and really qualified candidates, again, that look like America as the branches say they want their forces to look? Yeah, that, that's a great uh, question. And, and I think, unfortunately, we generally start the conversation with, you know, three and four star generals. And that conversation needs to start, as you know, much earlier, uh, because in the military, it takes uh, 20, 30 years to build a general officer. So those com those mentors, the mentorship, the conversations, uh, grooming folks, making sure the pipeline is is uh, rich with uh, diverse candidates and then building those candidates up through the system, up through captain, major, lieutenant, colonel, colonel. Uh, you really want a good, strong bench of colonels, uh, representative of the country uh, from all ethnicities, men and women, uh, those from all parts of the country, not just racially diverse, but diverse in background. Uh, that starts really early on and, and really, I think, culminates around the, the lieutenant colonel, colonel uh, time frame. Are there structural barriers that you saw during your Air Force career that maybe don't pertain necessarily directly to the man or woman involved, a minority or a female, but that tend to have that effect uh, as a whole, um, job choices that 
people tend to make or career choices that people make, things like that, Larry, that the services could maybe be more proactive in trying to address? Yeah, the, the Air Force, I think, has a unique challenge because if you think about most of the top leadership jobs in the Air Force, the majority of them are filled by pilots, and the majority of those are filled by fighter pilots. Um, you can have a discussion whether that's uh, the best way to go or not, but that's kind of where it is now. And so uh, if I'm, we don't know exactly why, uh, but a lot of minorities and women don't come into operational career fields and particularly gravitate toward a fighter pilot career field. So if you think about if the Air Force, if the, if the top jobs in the Air Force are filled by fighter pilots um, or at least pilots, uh, and not many minorities or women go into those career fields, then that's a that's an automatic problem. Now, I think, uh, you know, I don't know if it's good news or bad news, but I think that is changing. Space now is becoming more prevalent. Intel is becoming more prevalent. Cyber is becoming more prevalent. So I think over time, there will be a, a much more diverse leadership uh, by background leading the Air Force. So I think that will help as well. And so I guess it, it, it maybe creates two possibilities for the Air Force to explore. Number one, how do we interest uh, minorities and women in those career fields that they don't normally take, not just for the sake of building a two, three, four-star cohort later in life, but for diversifying those career fields, but also how do we, we maybe expand the aperture of the kinds of people that we choose from? I remember you and I talked about this the last time we talked off the air. Um, there was kind of a, a little buzz when uh, General Schwartz was selected to be the chief because he was a cargo pilot and, and not, as you talked about, a fighter or bomber pilot. So that strikes me more as a worldview or a cultural discussion. Is that a fair read, General? I agree 100%. You know, take, I worked for General Schwartz uh, right before he retired. Uh, the guy's a, a war fighter. Uh, you know, he was a special ops, uh, C-130 pilot, uh, combat veteran. I mean, you know, there should have never have been any question by anyone uh, about General Schwartz's qualification to be chief of staff. So, yeah, that, that is a cultural thing, I think, that uh, we need to overcome. Uh, but, you know, back to your original point, uh, recently I, I spoke to some high school students at the Black Engineer of the Year program, uh, large gathering of folks, uh, probably 200 uh, juniors and seniors, uh, all minorities, all high SAT. These were great folks. Uh, and I gave them a... a, a uh, a briefing uh, with pictures and movies and, and illustrations of F-35s and, and F-15s. It, it, you know, it made me want to be a fighter pilot. And, and after the, the presentation, I said, okay, uh, how many of you want to be pilots? And not one hand went up. It was amazing. I said, well, what do you want to do if you come in the Air Force? I want to be a civil engineer. I want to be in cyber. You know, they had a lot of different things they wanted to do. But for whatever reason, being a pilot was not one of them. And I, I find that fascinating. So you're right. That's a discussion that has to take place early on in life, in high schools, in elementary schools probably, uh, where you have young pilots, folks in, in, uh, in flight suits that look like them, walking through their schools, talking to them, to plant that seed about being a pilot and how neat of a job that is. Larry, a lot more I'd like to cover on this, but we're out of time. Look forward to continuing the conversation. I appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Up next, a move forward for the Defense Department's new cyber certification. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what defense contractors should be preparing for now. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
Welcome back. The General Services Administration says it may include cybersecurity maturity model certification requirements in the contracts on the new STARS 3-8A small business set-aside. That means companies that didn't think they had to think about CMMC now have to think about it. Eric Crucius is a partner at Holland and Knight. Eric, you've been warning about this for a long time, that the possibility that companies that don't think of themselves as defense contractors might have to think of themselves as defense contractors. Is this kind of the warning sign that people should uh, be aware of CMMC requirements even if they're not necessarily playing in the defense space? Absolutely. I, yeah, like you said, I've been saying for a while that uh, this is a requirement that if it goes well, if the DOD rollout is successful, we could see uh, go across the whole of government. Um, so contractors who are in the civilian space may soon get wrapped up in, in having to comply with CMMC. The certification is going to last for three years. So once they roll out the certification, there's going to be possibly a lull that they could work in those uh, kind of civilian contractors into and allow them to kind of go through the CMMC process. What do you think companies should be doing now if they're just walking down this path for the first time? They should really um, take stock of their contracts and determine, okay, I have these contracts that have this kind of CUI, this kind of DOD information, so I'm anticipating that I'm going to need X level. Am I at X level right now, or do I need help to get there? Also, let's look at my supply chain. Are folks in my supply chain also going to need to be CMMC certified? Because the answer is that DOD says that it has to be flowed down all the way down through the supply chain. Um, one thing we don't know yet is um, who's going to determine uh, the subcontractor CMMC level required to perform the work. We know that DOD is going to, when they issue a contract, say for that contract, X CMMC level is required, one through five. But subcontractors oftentimes handle information that's something less than the prime contractor has access to. So in that circumstance, will a subcontractor need a lower CMMC level? And if so, will DOD authorize that? Or is that something the prime contractor would, will do? And if the prime contractor does, what happens if they assign a level that DOD eventually disagrees with? Everything that you just said makes perfect sense. But I want to pull back a step or two. And I'm thinking about this uh, announcement from GSA that they might use this as a measure uh, when they're responding or when they're uh, analyzing uh, vendors for STARS 3. If I'm a company that maybe was on STARS 2 or um, would like to get on 3, how do I take into account the possibility of CMMC requirements when I'm working on an RFP? Right. So um, we don't know what kind of level, this is all kind of new, what level GSA would require contractors to have or if they just require a base level to get on the contract and then they're, you know, off of the task orders could be something something else. But contractors, I think all across the board, no matter whether you're in the DOD space or non-DOD space, um, should be paying attention to CMMC and determining how's my how robust is my are my cybersecurity controls. The good news is we have the model out right now that they're using to determine um, to match contractors up against. So we know the midpoint level, level three, is the equivalent of NIST Special Publication 800-171, roughly. Um, so what, if I was a contractor, no matter my size, I'd take, I'd take out 800-171. It's a pretty easy-to-follow guide. And look at the list within the 800-171. There's kind of a list of 110 security controls. Look at that list and see what I'm doing. If you're a good-sized contractor, you're probably doing 90-plus percent of those things already. So you just need to kind of look at that gap analysis and figure out how do I get to that 
Um, so then you're ready to go. And you have, um, you'll have a competitive advantage over others who don't. Um, especially in the civilian space, we saw 800-172 the other out the other day. Uh, dra uh, draft guidance from NIST on CMMC. That's also, I mean, the roadmap is here. Basically, is it sounds like what you're saying that for the companies that want to try to figure it out, they can get pretty far ahead of the curve by just following the tools that are already out there. Is that? Am I hearing you right, Eric? That's correct. And in addition to that, you can hire whether contractors want to undergo this expense or not, because CMMC is going to be a, uh, a burden for contractors. You can hire folks to come in and, and look at your cybersecurity posture and see, see where your shortfalls all are. And there are companies who are, act as a kind of a cybersecurity back office that enable you to kind of go out and uh, outsource some of your cybersecurity, at least anyway, to make compliance a little bit easier. We have uh, about a minute and a half left, and that's where I wanted to go. Is there potentially a cottage industry here in providing CMMC compliance for companies that can't do it themselves or don't want to do it themselves, uh, where somebody can provide the infrastructure at least as a service that a company can just go buy? Or maybe that already exists, and I just haven't seen it yet. <laughs> it has existed to some extent, but I, see, well, I think we'll see it on steroids coming up. There's not just a cottage industry for that. There's a cottage industry for everything surrounding CMMC, you know, helping you get ready for certification, um, assessing your cybersecurity readiness, all those kinds of things that enable a contractor to say, I am going to be CMMC certified, hopefully soon, once that once I'm able to be CMMC certified, um, has uh, a lot of companies kind of cropping up and, and offering to help contractors with. I would be careful if I'm a contractor to look at uh, these companies really carefully. Uh, do they have experience in this area? Have they done certifications before um, that are similar to CMMC? Because um, CMMC, as revolutionary as it is in the government contracting space, there have been other kind of certification tests, ISO certification, things like that. So you want to look to companies that have experience in that area. Um, and of course, um, I would also say look to lawyers and consultants and folks like that who are play in this area who can help a company along the way. But all of this, of course, is an expense. And while DOD said that this is an expense that can be borne against a contract, if you don't have a contract yet, it's a significant expense that you're undertaking without the promise of any work in the future. Eric Crucius, thanks very much as always. I appreciate it. Thank you. Coming next, a familiar face performing the duties of the comptroller at DOD. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the new agenda for the temporary CFO. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. We'll be right back. Welcome back. The Defense Department has a new financial management leader. Thomas Harker will continue as Navy Comptroller while he performs the duties of the Undersecretary of Defense Comptroller. Bob Hale is senior fellow at the Center for a New American Security, former Undersecretary of Defense Comptroller. Bob, thanks for coming on the program. First, I want to start with the name. The Pentagon's website refers to Mr. Harker as performing the duties of the Undersecretary of Defense Comptroller, not acting. Is, does that make a big difference about the job that he'll be doing? Well, I think not. I think it's a nuance associated with the Vacancies Act, and frankly, I'm not an expert on it. What is important is that he isn't confirmed and probably won't be in the remainder of, of this first term of the Trump administration. I doubt if the Senate will get around to it. And that, I think, causes problems of two kinds. One, 
you can keep the trains running, but it's harder uh, to actually uh, introduce anything new or, or bring about change in the department unless you're actually confirmed. And the second problem is there's a, he's still trying to be Navy FM. I doubt he'll have much time to do that, so he won't have much time for that job. Somebody will effectively have to be acting or PTDO as it's called in the Navy FM job. Uh, there's a job not, not being done. And uh, the senior leader, the financial leaders in the department are hard jobs and they need people. And so uh, I think it's unfortunate that we have this one as acting and so many others acting right now in the Pentagon. You have done a similar transition in the past. You led the Air Force's financial management shop and then uh, transitioned in the Obama administration to the comptroller position. What's the difference between running a financial management organization at the service level and at the OSD level, Bob? Well, the fundamentals are the same, but uh, at the OSD level, um, you, you've got obviously a wider portfolio all of the department. I'd say you have a lot more authority. Uh, you're speaking for the Secretary of Defense on, on financial matters and a lot more involvement with Congress. Uh, the, the service FMs don't tend to have a lot of congressional involvement. Uh, certainly the OSD comptroller does. But I'll say on the service side, uh, I uh, was uh, spent seven years as the Air Force Comptroller and enjoyed it greatly because the services have an operational mission. Uh, and it's interesting to watch them perform that mission and help them uh, perform it from a financial standpoint. I went through the Bosnian War while I was Comptroller of the Air Force, and it was fascinating to watch uh, the, uh, the Air Force get ready for and conduct that operation. So I'm glad I had a chance to do both. Uh, because I think both of them uh, were, were fascinating and fulfilling jobs. Does that experience give Mr. Harker a leg up because he's already seen financial management from a military perspective, or are the jobs different enough that it doesn't really make much difference, Bob? Oh, absolutely a big leg up. I can't think of better preparation to be the OSD comptroller than to be the service FM. I mean, you've walked in the services moccasins, and a lot of what the OSD comptroller does is work with the services to bring about uh, the uh, policies that the secretary wants. Um, and you obviously know the building, um, so it's, it's a, a major plus, I believe, that uh, Tom has his experience as the Navy FM as he takes on these duties. It strikes me, too, that he's got a tremendous leg up because he's got Mark Easton there as his deputy who's been there for a very long time and really knows exactly the lay of the land. Mark's been working on the audit process since the very beginning, and I would assume that audit is job one, two, three, and four for anybody that goes into that job. Is that a fair read? No, I actually think it's not. First off, I'm a great fan of Mark Easton. He's both a, a former colleague and a personal friend, um, uh, and I have a lot of respect for him. But in terms of, of what's in the most important job in my mind as OSD comptroller is making sure that uh, the men and women in the military and the civilians who support them have the re financial resources they need to meet the military mission. That's putting together budgets and coaxing them through Congress and then making sure the money gets to where it has to be on time and in a manner that's legal. That was, yeah, and I think for all DOD comfort, audit was a very important one and I did my best. We didn't get anywhere, uh, although we got close uh, and should have gotten somewhere, I think. Um, uh, but there, and as well as uh, taking care of the uh, FM workforce in terms of training and looking for efficiencies, 
Uh, but job one is the budget job, uh, I think, for the OSD comptroller. We, we have about a minute left, Bob. What would you watch moving forward? What, what, how will you see what happens next here? Is it just a matter of who winds up in that job permanently, or is there more to it than that? Well, I mean, there are day-to-day -day things that have to happen. Uh, they have to put together a budget, uh, which if the Trump wins will be submitted presumably next February. That's an important part of, of what Harper's role will be. Obviously, he'll want to continue the audit. He's an expert in that, uh, and, and I'm sure he'll be paying attention to it, and we'll see. Uh, I understand they're getting closer, and I certainly hope uh, that they succeed in getting at least uh, some uh, uh, unqualified or modified opinions. So a lot of day-to-day -day things. I wouldn't expect major changes uh, because, as I said before, that's hard to do when you're in an acting or performing the duties of capacity. Bob Hale, thanks very much. As always, great to talk to you. Glad to be here, Francis. Thank you. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters Podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV. In tonight's event spotlight, the NatSec 2020 Coronavirus and Beyond virtual conference is coming. You'll learn how COVID-19 will affect the business of government in the national security community and how it could restructure the four specialty areas that drive the business of government, personnel, acquisition, financial management, and information technology. It's available next week, July 13th through 17th from 1 to 2 p.m. You can join our free webinar at fedinsider.com or tune in to WJLA 24-7 News. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7. Stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.